You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. This week we get to conclude a series. We've been talking about conflict and it's been pretty, uh, pretty like, I feel like, life-giving in some ways, and helpful, and challenging, and all those sorts of things. And to give you a quick overview of where we've been, three weeks ago, this is week four, so yeah, three, three sermons ago, we uh, started with really looking at Jesus's model, and we'll talk about that a little bit again today to kind of help recap, but we talked about Jesus's model for stepping into conflict, and um, we looked at John chapter eight, and this woman who is Um, about to have rocks thrown at her and how Jesus steps in, and we'll talk about that a little more. And then week two, we really tried to take it another step and really talk about the dynamics of conflict and some of those issues that that arise. And in week three, we actually took a, a really important pivot and got very practical. And Pastor Jen shared with us something called nonviolent communication, and we had a kind of a seminar uh, session together, which was rad. I had so much fun kind of watching that happen among us. And uh, today I want to try and gather up some of those pieces and insert just one more thought, knowing that we're stepping into uh, a season of family in a, a unique way. Thanksgiving is coming up. Christmas is around the corner. These are spaces where family conflict really come up, which is really one of the things we've hit on in multiple talks, especially talk two. And so I want to really just try and talk about this idea of relationships that are messy. And loving others isn't easy. And um, the the theme today that I want to think about is anger. Yeah, that's a good one. Anger is, is probably the thing you sit with in conversations that make you feel things, right? And uh, anger and conflict, there's all kinds of versions of what this might mean, right? If, uh, for instance, you're on equal footing with the other person, there's a kind of anger that is um, sort of you're standing in a mutual space, right? And that kind of anger is different than if perhaps you are the marginalized person in the dynamic, right? And there's a difference, and we have to name that. And so, so what I want to do is just talk about anger. These are not what you would consider universal ways to tell everyone they must act when they're angry. We, can we clear that up? Yeah, so, so there are moments when um, anger, I believe, is thoroughly, justifiably, understandably present. And... What we do with that anger is indeed an invitation from Jesus. But the reality of anger is that it's real and that it's raw and that it is telling you something about the dynamic you've entered with the other person or party. And I wonder how often our sort of like space and capacity to engage in dialogue automatically gets shut down, our rational brain gets shut down because we are fuming in the moment. And I wonder if you can even imagine your own life for a moment and imagine conversations you've had that you would consider conflicts. And the truth of the matter is it was not a moment where you were going to actually do anything productive. You. I'm not talking about the other party. I'm talking about you. 
right? Like if you imagine some conflicts that really got heated, were they conflicts that were, were they gonna go anywhere towards reconciliation based on that moment of your posture? That's a question to ask. And sometimes you can have anger and also have the capacity in that moment to both give the truth of that anger, we're gonna talk about that, but also that truth is actually a move towards healing, a move towards reconciling the dynamic. But other times it's blah. And we have to ask when and how we sit with those things and with whom we sit with those things. There's certain people that going blah might be the safest thing you do because you have prearranged some parameters from which that's okay. There, there are certain other dynamics where going blah with all your stuff, it's going to create further alienation. It's actually not going to get to where you're hoping to go, if that's indeed your hope. And so anger and conflict is something that's worth talking about. Um, really, I was trying to figure out, like, how do you illustrate anger? You know, I'm not angry right now. I could, I don't know, if you came up and kicked me, I might get angry. But that would be a weird illustration, right? We're talking about nonviolence pretty often around here. So, so I rather would show you a cartoon. So let's do that. Deserve. Wait, did he just say we couldn't have dessert? That's anger. He cares very deeply about things being fair. So that's how you want to play it, old man? No dessert? Oh, sure. We'll eat our dinner. Uh, that's one way to think about anger. There's a lot of other ways to think about it. But the movie Inside Out, I mean, what it, what it did for me, uh, amongst many things, and years ago, we actually did a series based on Inside Out, a few of you will remember that, um, is it reminds us that, you know what, there are times where we just have to let it out, um, and yet, um, it brings things to the table, so to speak. <laughs> um, I want to keep going. I, a couple of recaps. Here's one recap. Um, we talked about conflict styles the first week, and we talked about the turtle who kind of hides and is kind of pulls back in conflict. We talked about the shark who goes for it. Maybe um, anger and sharks maybe typically, stereotypically would be together a lot more often. Um, we talked about the teddy bear who's just like, it's all good, don't worry. Like, it's not really about goals, it's about being friends, you know? And then we talked about the wise owl who says both goals and friendship are indeed important. And so um, we talked about Jesus as the wise owl, as a metaphor for thinking about Jesus that first week. And these are some of the things that we learned from Jesus our first week together. We learned that um, Jesus was really good at understanding both perspectives, while not necessarily saying both perspectives were the right perspective. Uh, we talked about the way that Jesus is a master at exposing dehumanizing behaviors, that Jesus has this mastery when it comes to stepping into a dynamic and saying what you are doing is saying an image bearer is less than an image bearer right here. And he wouldn't always say, don't make this image bearer not an image bearer, but God, he, would, he would step in and he would model it. I mean, he would walk it through. He would see options that many of us don't see, especially when we're frustrated or angry or sad. You know, when, when, when we're in the mix of it all, sometimes it's hard to see that this or that isn't always the only way forward. And of course, one that I think made a big impact on a lot of us was the, the, the idea that Jesus invites us to choose love and not winning. 
which I'm still holding. I'm still sitting with that. That's a hard one. That's probably the hardest um, teaching of Jesus, choosing love over winning. It's really challenging because I think it applies all over the place beyond conflict even. And so we, we see in Jesus when he's stepping into this conflict with these men with stones in their hands and this woman that he invites him to drop those rocks to get rid of the stones and he carves a path forward that frees, that liberates, that brings, that brings justice and possibility to the woman and brings the confrontation necessary to these men to be exposed by their own evil, their own desires to win, their own desire to do harm. And so um, speaking the truth in love is what we see in Jesus. Last week, and um, I'm going to be quick here, but the four steps of nonviolent communication. If you have not been um, exposed to nonviolent communication, we um, are inviting you to talk to someone about it who was here, and we can um, consider maybe other options for you to be immersed in that material. But last week, of course, Jen walked us through sort of nonviolent communication being about observe, making the observations and the dynamic and, and naming feelings, not, um, <laughs> not about statements, but I statements. That was very important. That's actually really big in my own journey. It's like, how can I name just what's going on with me in this dynamic? Like, I am angry is different than, you know, projection towards the other. Um, maybe that's where it fits a little bit today. Um, what do you need out of the dynamic in the conversation and actually making those requests clear and known? And so we, we've had some ways that we've talked about conflict. And what I want to do is I want to look at two passages this morning and invite us to have a little dialogue around them. And the two passages, one will be the words of Jesus, the other will be the words of his brother James. And we're going to talk about this idea of anger through the lens of conflict. And so in Matthew chapter 5, this is the passage, verse 21 through 24. Jesus says this, he says, You have heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, don't commit murder, and all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. If they say to their brother or sister, you idiot, I know that's mean, it's, it's this uh, word raka in the ancient language, they will be in danger of being condemned by the governing council. If they say, you fool, they will be in danger of fiery hell. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First, make things right with your brother or sister and then come back and offer your gift. Now, a couple of things are really important to note here. Number one, Jesus is speaking into the Jewish community. So, so lay a foundation, right? Jesus is not talking to um, non-Jewish people here, although we translate that towards us. Jesus is specifically speaking in language that makes sense to first century Jewish people. Why is he doing that? Well, he's trying to invite the people of Israel into a new way of being God's people. That's what Jesus does. 
He's not saying don't be Israeli or don't be Jewish, don't be who you are. He's saying, I'm going to show you the evolutionary step necessary for you to reflect the way of God in a new way as you are. And so for Jesus, what that means is he has to step into Jewish teaching and he has to say things like, you have heard it said in our own Bible most of the time, right? You have heard it said in our Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, this is how it goes down. But I'm going to show you the next stage and what God was already up to back there. This was good then. Here's something that's even better. I'm going to show you how. And so Jesus is negotiating from his place of authority as the descendant of David, as the son of God, as God in the flesh, all of these places that he inhabits, he is renegotiating the old terms of relationship. And so he, he invites him to say, look, you're, you know that murder is wrong and you're going to get judged for that. That's how the Torah works. That's what you should expect. That's what we should expect of most people, right? Like that, 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 that's, and so Jesus says, look, if you want to be my followers, it's, it's harder than that. And he says, if you're, if you're angry and you're cursing, you're saying terminology to people that is dehumanizing, that's just as bad. I gotta say another word. He talks about a fiery hell here. Let me talk about hell for a minute because that's always fun. Um, <laughs> so, so we all probably have different ideas about what hell is in this particular context because there's several different words that are the word translated hell in our English language. In the New Testament, um, in the Hebrew Bible, anytime you see hell there, it really is, it, it's really a bad translation. It's the place of the dead maybe, and that's as close as we get. In the New Testament, we have a lot of different words. Here, the word is Gehenna. Gehenna is a valley outside of Jerusalem. It's called the Valley of Hinnom. So Gehenna is just like a... Now we're getting, by the way, we're up here just for like two minutes. Deal? Okay. So Gehenna is a transliteration from another language of the, what we in English would say, the Valley of Hinnom. So the word hell here literally should say the Valley of Hinnom. So let's start there. How does that make you feel? You say, fool, they are in danger of the fires of the Valley of Hinnom. Okay, it's different, yeah, yeah, okay, so, so we're, we'll start there. The Valley of Hinnom in the ancient world of uh, biblical imagination, especially in the prophets, you see this in Isaiah, um, is a place where bodies that are destroyed after judgment, not the end times, but in real time, in real place, for instance, after the exile and the wars of the exilic period, so when Babylon comes in and conquers Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom is where the prophet describes bodies burning and dying, their dead bodies, and 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 goes into such vivid, poetic, I don't know if you want to use that word, poetic detail as to say, and there's worms there that don't die because they've got plenty of food, essentially, to consume in these corpses. And the fires are just burning. Now, this is what we call hyperbole. This is big language to describe a concept. 
But when Jesus uses the word Gehenna, it is most likely that he has in mind something that is about to happen, not something about post-mortem judgment, the end of the world stuff, right? Which we can get there. What Jesus probably, and this is my opinion, so that's okay, but what Jesus probably has in mind in our little caveat is something that is coming in about 30 or so years, 30 to 40 years, um, 70 CE, AD, right? The Romans will come in. They will smash the entire city of Jerusalem flat, and they will actually do what he says in chapter 13 of Mark, for instance, that every stone will be toppled down. Not one will be left on another. What Jesus is doing in many of the judgment passages that are focused around the people of Israel is he is trying to prepare them for an alternative way of being human because the Romans are going to come and topple everything down that they know about their identity. And so they're going to have a choice in that moment. Are we going to be the kind of people who dehumanize other people or are we going to be the kind of people who reflect the love and generosity of God? Well, what we know historically happens is that actually goes down. Some people leave town, get out of the way. Jesus warns them to do this in Mark 13 and other places. And, and eventually, um, people that are followers of Jesus settle in places like Asia Minor, where Revelation is written to, and some of these other places throughout the empire. But what we know, at least, is that when Jesus is trying to say, like, look, when you treat your brother or sister in a way that is dehumanizing, you are setting your heart on a trajectory to be the kind of person who is in danger of the kind of thing that the prophets warned about and experienced way back in the exile, and that I'll be warning you about when I talk about the destruction of Jerusalem that is coming. That, that, that's powerful stuff. So that's the world of Jesus. So what Jesus probably isn't saying to his Jewish community He's probably not saying, hey, um, look, if you've ever said you fool, make sure you've said your confession or you've prayed and, you know, you've gotten right. Because if you're not right, you're going to go to a place called hell and there's going to be pitchforks there and it's going to hurt. Okay? For Jesus, that's not the world he inhabits. That's the world of the Middle Ages. That's not the world of the first century. And so, so Jesus isn't saying anything about watch out make sure you say these four things about god and don't go to the bad place we want to go to the good place ha some of you watch that and it's so good it's not biblically anything but it's so good <laughs> so if you watch the good place also don't get your theology from there um, but that is the gravity for Jesus, relationship that goes wrong long enough sets your heart on a trajectory to be the kind of person who decides, we're going to fight the Romans. We're going to push back against these. Jesus is like, no, no, no. Love. Use your words wisely. Don't let your anger lead you to become a different kind of person. Don't forget our history when people died because they let their anger and their idolatry and various other things lead them on a path towards destruction. 
Another thing that I think is really interesting, besides that hell caveat, and by the way, um, that wasn't a, a like, like, if you haven't been here when we've talked about hell in the past, that's not me like going, therefore be universalist or something weird. Like that's not our deal either. Um, simply saying, let's put this into context and honor the context, right? And so, so, so we have that. And then we have this other thing. If you bring your gift to the altar, remember, remembering that there's a dynamic between you and someone else, like go back and fix the dynamic. And I think we, it's hard for us to sort of understand that, that sort of thing, right? We don't worship in a synagogue or temple setting. We don't have gifts that we bring to an altar. Um, I think technically these things are sometimes referred to as altars. It's always weird to me. I don't use that language in normal life. But, but the idea that, um, you know, as we come and be authentic before God, we're invited to be authentic before other humans, and that anger can be a blockade to that, that's great. That, there's wisdom in that. And so those are just some of the thoughts as we process the context a little bit. And here's one of the things that I think is really important for us to draw from this. I think Jesus is inviting us to consider something like this, that unprocessed anger sometimes reveals a heart of judgment. So sometimes, sometimes it's just unprocessed and that's okay, right? Sometimes reveals a heart of judgment which is something ultimately reserved for God alone. I don't want to have the wisdom it takes to know whether or not you should be judged. That's too much responsibility. Like, that's way too much responsibility for any human being. And Jesus over and over again will say this. Paul will say this in multiple ways. The whole New Testament is littered with passages that say, look, you don't have what it takes to judge another image bearer, so stop it. That, to me, is pretty relevant today. Like when we think about the Bible, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't translate. That has to translate. Like, for me, if I think about the many times in my life where I've judged another person, in that kind of judgment mode, I am, I am picking up what only Jesus should be picking up. Because Jesus is so much wiser. Now, I want to make a distinction. Um, there's this word in Greek. It's fancy. Krino. Krino. Krino is the word for, that means I judge. I judge. Um, and it has various forms. Now, it's also the word that means I discern. I decide. And so depending on context, we have to also notice that there are times when discerning something that you see true in another person is wise. Deciding something for another person is wise. Like today, I decided to help Lydia choose a dress, right? Because the first one we chose had no sleeves and it was thin. And I said, it's 41 degrees right now. I don't know about this, right? And so, so deciding, discerning, and then judgment in the sense of we think you are less than. And this is why. And so we, we hold all of that and say that third kind of judgment word I only think Jesus has the wisdom to do that. And if that's true, you know what it does? It doesn't just invite you to say, oh, wow, I need to stop judging. It actually gives you the opportunity to be free of judging. Judging other people is exhausting. 
It is utterly exhausting. If you've ever been in the middle of some sort of like back and forth email battle between a relative, back and forth Facebook or Twitter bite, whatever, back and forth conversation that just keeps going back and forth and back and forth, you know, it's exhausting. It's exhausting, especially when it's the kind of thing that is really rooted in some feelings you have about the other person. You can discern things about the other person, but as soon as the discernment becomes judgment, you've got to ask hard questions of yourself in that moment. And that's maybe a grid for thinking about anger. When has anger turned from, I'm trying to discern the scenario and my own injustices I'm experiencing within it, and I'm trying to decide the worth of the person who I believe has wronged me. There is a shift that has happened in that moment. And Jesus would say, watch out. You're in danger of the kind of thing that happened in 586 BC when Babylon came in and tore things to shreds. You're in danger of the kind of thing that happened in 70 AD when Rome came in and tore things to shreds. You're in danger of the kind of thing that severs relationship. And so... I'll give us one second thought. I, I wonder also if that anger expressed without a desire for reconciliation can dehumanize. And the dehumanizing part is always sin. Anger expressed without a desire for reconciliation can dehumanize. Again, you notice me trying to avoid universals because I know relationships are complex. But the dehumanizing part, I will be universal about. As soon as you dehumanize another person that God said is human, you have sin. That's it. As soon as you decide someone else has less value than you, you are sinning. And I'm one of those good postmodern 21st century Seattle progress, blah, blah, blah. I hate the word sin, and I'm using it, and I'm going to be very blunt about it. You have disrupted shalom. You have destroyed relationship. You've created alienation. As soon as you decide someone has less value than you, you are in a state of sin, and it, it's broken. Two laws that Jesus actually says are central. Love God, love people. That's it. You've broken half of them. Like, Jesus gives you two commands. Actually, three. He also said, love your enemies. That's a hard one, right? Um, so, so it's like if you just wrap it all up into one big package, love God, love people, and even your enemies, you've broken at least two, if not three of those, right? Like, and, and so Jesus invites you to say, look, when you're angry, how are you going to hold it? And just because anger leads to you talking loudly, that doesn't mean you're sinning or dehumanizing another person. But when anger becomes weapon. It's now a spiritual weapon that looks a lot different than the kinds of weaponry we're invited to in the Bible. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Shoes fitted for peace. The breastplate of righteousness or justice. Do you see, all of these things have power and anger weaponized is the inverse of that power that God has given you to step into conflict. Why do we have this 
thing called the armor of God, this metaphor for how we can equip our lives with virtues that look like Jesus, is because you're going to have to step into stuff that's hard, not because it makes you feel safe. Armory isn't to just make you feel safe. Armory is to actually step into battle. And because we're invited to battle a different way as Christians, because we're stepping in without physical weapons, we step in with the beautiful virtues of Jesus, the things that Jesus has taught us that are going to equip us in conflict, whatever it might be. I mean, it kind of comes down to winning versus reconciliation or, or getting even versus reconciliation. Winning and getting even are often the, the driving force behind this rage that we may feel. And so, recognizing some of this, I want to pause there. That's the, kind of my, my halfway or a little over halfway point, because we're going to step into the letter of James, but, but I think Jesus has a lot to tell us here, a lot to invite us into. And so, I do want to give us some time to process that. As we step in and kind of tie up the uh, talk here, I want to read from the letter of James and maybe make one more observation that uh, hopefully will continue conversations among you and in a community and in groups and all that. So, so James is the brother of Jesus. We have evidence in the Gospels that James is a bit of a skeptic and then he's not by the time Jesus rose from the dead. Apparently he saw his brother die and not be dead anymore and that convinced him. Wow. So um, that would convince me too. And, and so James in chapter 3 of his letter, which I think is one of the most provocative, justice-driven letters in the whole Bible, um, invites us to think about the way that our mouths and how we communicate our anger and various things can um, disrupt the uh, process of um, reconciliation when there's conflict. So in verse 3, it says this, When we bridle horses and put bits in their mouths to lead them wherever we want, we can control their whole bodies. Quick thing, I don't ride horses very often. When I have, I've almost fallen off and it scares me. But, um, you know, there's a bit, there's this piece of metal, essentially, right, that goes in their mouths, tied to the reins, and it's that mechanism of pulling in a certain way that actually steers them. And so... There's a way to lead them, and it's their mouths that actually are taking the lead of their whole body. It's pretty fascinating. Great image. Uh, verse 4 says this. Consider ships. They are so large that strong winds are needed to drive them, but pilots direct their ships wherever they want with a little rudder. In the same way, even though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts wildly. Think about this. A small flame can set a whole forest on fire. The tongue is a small flame of fire, a world of evil at work in us. It contaminates our entire lives. So this is poetic stuff. Like this is him preaching basically, right? Like this, you imagine the person who sent, like takes the letter and delivers this letter from James to the community. And at this point, I mean, you know, She's got her sweat rag out, and she's just reading. You know, it, it's intense, right? And, and, and this is just beautiful metaphor. And so now he says, look at the tongue. Like, it's, 
evil at work within us. Of course, there's a metaphor layered in that. Your tongue isn't actually evil, just, you know, okay. Because of it, the circle of life is set on fire. The tongue itself is set on fire by the flames of hell. Again, interesting, connected to our earlier conversation. I'm not going to do that twice. People can tame and already have tamed every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish. No one can tame the tongue, though. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we both bless the Lord and Father and curse human beings made in God's likeness. And so here, in a poetic way, James is trying to get us to understand, right? He's not giving us like absolutes about what the tongue is or isn't. James is trying to open our imaginations in this passage with metaphor after metaphor after metaphor and driving it home. He says, look, that mouth of yours, the way that you speak, the way that you manage your experience of the world, anger being part of that, the way that you navigate your own words, you have power to be the kind of person who blesses God or destroys the likeness and image of God. Dehumanizes, we might say. It's a fascinating contrast. And in fact, it almost sounds like for James, it's like, we do both. We're good at doing both. Like, it's not like you can do this or that. It's, let's be real. You do both of these things. I would guess that if you're a follower of Jesus, you probably would have to agree with James here. That I do both of these things. I do them both. And so the question then is like, okay, why do we do them both? And it's going to keep happening. It's going to keep happening. But the awareness and the invitation about anger, the invitation about the way we use our words and the power they have, James is simply saying, look, your words have so much power that you have got to become the kind of person that thinks about what you say because your words can literally bring the beauty of God into the world and harm the very people that God loves. You know, as I think about this, I think about many words that have gone out of my mouth when they shouldn't have. Out loud processors? I am. <laughs> I, so many times in conversation, even debating conversations, if you ever have a heated conversation with me about some philosophical idea about the world, which I'm kind of over, so I don't do that as much anymore, but, but you know, if, if you ever have these kind of conversations with me, what you'll find is that my words will get ahead of what I actually internally believe. And unfortunately, if it's actually in the midst of a conflict, my words getting ahead of what I actually believe about you can be quite hurtful, right? And maybe you're similar in how you deal with words. And maybe you're the opposite. And, and, and when you're the opposite, this is what I've found is true as well. You hear words and give them more power than the person saying them would give them. But then that becomes what you hold on to, right? So there's all of these things that words can do. Words can end up being really these things that we say quickly because we're trying to actually learn our position that's inside of our hearts by expressing words. And unfortunately, they come out messy and maybe even painful. 
Or we internally learn how to sort of wrestle with and come up with our own words. And by the way, in conflict, sometimes that's a gift and sometimes it's not. Sometimes you don't have words to express what you're feeling, right? And so learning that this is all part of communication, I think, is so important as well. But what Jesus invites us to is to recognize this, and this is where we're going to stop, that our words have power to move conflict towards truth and reconciliation or the destruction of relationship. That's, for me, the bottom line today. It's not, is the feeling of anger bad? I don't think it is. I think at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves the question, is our anger and how we communicate it a source of truth-telling? And is it moving towards reconciliation? Or the destruction of the relationship? I want to end by just inviting you to hold and imagine. You don't have to close your eyes or anything, but maybe this is an exercise you can do this week or consider this week. But one of the things that often has helped me in stepping into things that are hard, whether it be conversations or challenging situations or whatever, sometimes it's conflict, there there can be other reasons. But uh, maybe consider a conflict that you're actually facing, something challenging. And I wonder if as you consider the challenging situation you find yourself in, I wonder what it would be like as you step into that conversation to imagine it in your mind going the way that you desire it could go. And none of it actually being about the other person's response. None of it actually being about outcomes. None of it actually being, I convinced them. But all of that imagination space with Jesus kind of prayerfully reflecting saying, what kind of person am I from start to finish in the midst of the mess? The person you desire to be tomorrow in your conflict, if you can tap into that person before the conflict, anticipating all of the pain and heartache that's going to be present in that conflict, and still at the end of it standing up and saying, I'm still here. I'm standing up in this mess. I wonder if that would give you the resources you need to maybe almost be, (laughs) maybe almost end up being that person when the actual conflict happens. Giving yourself grace, of course, for the things that are real, that are raw, that are hard. Because I think Jesus can imagine you being the person who steps into conflict in a different way. And I think sometimes the question for us is just simply saying, can we imagine what Jesus already sees as possible? So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to transition towards us um, doing some songs, and um, thanks for taking the time to really process and to wrestle with and to ask these hard questions with us in this series. And and thank you for um, being open and vulnerable and challenged in your own conflicts because I believe that not only will this make a big difference at the Thanksgiving table with your family members that are hard, I I believe it's going to make a big difference in Pangea. I believe it's going to make a big difference in your church family. I believe it's going to make a big difference in your small group. I think ultimately 
this is going to be something that if we take to heart a lot of the things we've talked about and infuse them into the way we do life together, that the life we live together is going to be more profound, more rich, and more Jesus-like. Thank you.